Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so I hope that we can... Now, there's no football game today, so I guess we can be here as long as we want to, huh? Um, Acts chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one on the floor around you. It's page 760 in that Bible. Uh, while you're getting there, I want to ask you a question. Who had a uh, clubhouse as a kid? A clubhouse or a treehouse or even just a fort in your room where there were certain people that were allowed in and certain people that weren't allowed in? You know what I'm talking about? Like, we had, um, mine was a closet in our basement, which doesn't sound very exciting, but let me tell you it was. It was about eight feet by eight feet, so a pretty good-sized closet, and my dad helped me hang a curtain on the outside, which provided all the privacy and security that you need as a kid, right? Um, and it had some really sturdy shelves on there that I could sit on or, or lay down on, and it housed all my favorite pictures that I hung on the wall and my comic book collection, at least until it grew too large uh, to fit in the clubhouse. But the thing that made it so special was that there were only three people in the world allowed in my clubhouse, and it was me and my two best friends. Okay, my two friends, okay? Uh, two of my only friends. Uh, but specifically excluded from the clubhouse were my sisters. They were not allowed under any circumstances to come into my clubhouse, whether I was there or not, except for the one day that our club decided we needed to have a fundraiser. And in that day, I invited my sisters and their allowance to come down and experience the club <laughs> because I wanted them to help pay for it, right? Here's the point. All of us need and desire a place to belong, don't we? And many of us find for ourselves or create for ourselves these exclusive clubs, these places where we get to pick who can come in and who's got to stay out. And the sad fact is that for many people, that's exactly what the church feels like. It's this exclusive club where only certain people can come in and other people are specifically excluded, either because of what they look like or where they live or how they live. But it was never meant to be that way. I mean, once Jesus came along, he opened up the kingdom of God who, to anyone who would follow after him. And we're going to see this inclusivity unfold today as we look at Acts chapter 4. So today we're in week 3, as Paul said, of our series called Sent. We're studying the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. Now, Acts records the development of the early church. Uh, back in Matthew 16, Jesus promised, he said, I will build my church. And then after his death and resurrection, we're told in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And just before Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8, we see him say this. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's why we've called this series Sent. Because at the very end of his ministry, after his death and resurrection, Jesus, uh, just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus sent his disciples out to be witnesses, to make disciples and to build the church. And so in week one, we said that the church was never meant to be defined by a building or a location, but it started as a movement. It was a, it was a collection, a gathering of people, a body of people. We said it was a family on mission. And uh, we gather together to be built up and equipped, and then we're sent, right? We're sent out into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our apartment complexes, into our schools, or into our sports teams to make disciples. And we said in week one that a church shouldn't be defined by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. How many people are we sending out in the mission field? Because you have a part to play in this, right? If you're part of the church, uh, if you're in Christ, you're part of his mission for this world. God wants to grow you and equip you to be sent out to represent him and make disciples in this world. 
God wants to use you. He wants to reach others through you. He wants to reach others through me. And he wants to continue the movement through us. And then last week, Jerry reminded us that the Holy Spirit is the power behind the church. That, that the church doesn't operate on human power. It's not, we don't rely on our own strength or our own wisdom or our own stature, but we rely on the powerful Holy Spirit of God. And the reason that you're sitting here today and the reason that the gospel even escaped the first century so that 2,000 years later, we could gather together on a Sunday and worship God like we do is because the Holy Spirit empowered the first believers to take Christ's messages uh, Christ's message to the places he said uh, we would, to the ends of the earth. Amazing, isn't it? That's why we're here. And so today, what we're going to see is that, whole, that same Holy Spirit power in work, uh, in, at work in two of the disciples, uh, John and Peter. Now, these are actually two of Jesus's chosen apostles that walked with him while he was alive. And these two men embodied a life of what we're going to call sentness right? Sentness. They were sent. And sometimes in our Western view of the church, we, we mistakenly believe that being sent is something that the organization does, right? That, that sharing the good news of Jesus is for the pastor and for the staff to do. But as we've said, the church is not an organization. It's not an institution. It's a collection of people. And each of us as individuals, we should embody this sentness that we see in Peter and John in this story today. As individuals, we carry and share the good news of Jesus. And as we do that, we fulfill the purpose that Jesus had for the church. It's up to all of us. Well, Peter and John lived that out. And so we're not really going to study Acts chapter 3 in this series, but in Acts chapter 3, just real quickly, I'll tell you what happens. They go up to the temple to pray, and they're confronted by this man. Now, this man was a beggar, and he was lame. He couldn't walk. Right? And so he, he was never able to walk, which means he couldn't work. And so every day he would show up at the temple courts, sit outside the gates to the temple, and he would ask people for money as they go in. And he asked these two, Peter and John, and Peter said to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you, get up and walk. And he leans over and he gives the man his hand and he pulls him up to his feet and the man immediately starts walking. And as you can imagine, he starts to draw a crowd. Because you know how you go to those places sometimes if you go to the same coffee shop or you go to the same restaurant and you see the same people and they sit in the same places and, and you get to know them. And even if you don't know their names or you don't know their stories, you know them by their face, right? And so imagine you're in the first century in Jerusalem and every day or on a regular basis anyway, you would go to the temple when your kids didn't have a sports game, you would go to the temple uh, to worship and uh, you would see this guy sitting there outside the temple courts and you would see him begging. And even if you didn't know anything about him and you didn't know his story and you didn't know his name, what you would know is there's the guy who can't walk. So what happens, what would happen one day if you walked into the temple and you see the guy up and walking around? You're gonna gawk, right? You're gonna start to stare and that's what happens. This crowd gathers and, and Peter, ever the preacher seeing an opportunity, what does he do? Well, he passes the offering plate. No, that's not what he does. He starts preaching a message. He starts preaching the gospel to this crowd. He said, Jesus is alive. He's the one sent from God. And you killed him, but he didn't stay dead. He came back so that you could be saved. And he wants you to turn from your wicked ways. In effect, that's what he says. That's my summary of Peter's sermon. And that gets us caught up to where we'll start today in Acts chapter 4. So you got your Bibles open there. Let's uh, go right to verse 1, Acts 4.1. It says this, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, who are the Sadducees, and why are they greatly disturbed by the apostles' message? Why do they care? Well, because their message that Jesus was raised from the dead was a threat to them. It was a threat to their power. They were leaders in the Jewish movement, and they were afraid to lose control. So they did what they could to protect themselves and to protect their position and their status and their way of life. And as a group, the Sadducees rejected the idea of resurrection from the dead. They didn't think there was any kind of afterlife. And because they didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in Jesus. And without Jesus, they had no Messiah. And with no Messiah, they had no hope. And that's why they were sad, you see. But this, if this story of Jesus being raised from the dead were true, then that changed things for them, didn't it? It changed their every belief and everything that they've been taught and everything that they stood for, and it would change their life, and it was a change they didn't really want. So they were greatly disturbed. Listen, if you go around claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, you can expect it's going to disturb some people. Your message is going to disturb some people. That's a healthy, realistic, biblical expectation. The gospel is good news for all, but it's disturbing to some people because if it's true, then it challenges our every belief and it forces us to change our priorities. And when we have to change our priorities, that's disturbing. So the Sadducees were greatly disturbed. So they put Peter and John in jail. Notice, though, that many who heard their message believed, and the number of men who believed grew to 5,000 in the church that day, that Peter's message worked. The church started to grow, but he got thrown in jail because of it. And as I read that this week, I wondered, is that a trade that I would make? Is that a trade that you would make? Like, would you be thrown in jail if you knew that it meant that thousands of people would come to know Christ? Yeah, you had to think about those things. You know, it's a pretty sure bet. Uh, well, in those days, they only counted men, right? And so that 5,000 people could very realistically be 15 to, or 5,000 men could very realistically be 15 to 20,000 people growing to, growing to know the Lord. So that movement of the church is growing. It's doing exactly what Jesus said it would do in Acts 1.8. Verse five, let's go back to the text. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, remember, these are the exact same people that just a couple of months ago had put Jesus on trial and had him crucified. And now they're doing the same thing to Peter and John, just, I mean, just weeks later. Right? They've put them in jail, and in essence, they've asked them the same question they asked Jesus. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, this is a question that every Christ follower has to answer at some point in our lives. You know, if something good happens to you, something positive, you need to ask the question, by what power or what name did this happen? Did, did this happen? Did I get that job because I'm such a good person? Do I live in that place? Do I drive that car? Do I have those friends? Do I have this family? Am I blessed like I'm blessed because I'm such a great person? Or is there another power or name behind that blessing? Did, did, did this come from my own strength, from my own abilities, or was this by the power of God? Let's see how Peter responds to this question. Verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and now he's going to quote Old Testament scripture, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, Luke, you remember that Luke is the author of Acts, okay? Luke makes a point to say that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we were to sit down together and just read this story, Acts 3 and 4, this whole story, okay, and and we were to ask this question, where do we see the Holy Spirit at work? The chances are pretty good that we would agree we see him at work in the lame man, right? When, when he's healed, he's healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense. And we would probably agree on that. But what else do we see? Luke says, he emphasizes that there is a power at work and a presence influencing Peter's words. That this isn't normal Peter, This is Peter filled and empowered and influenced by the Holy Spirit. Remember, less than two months ago, Peter was confronted by these same people at the trial of Jesus. And what did he do? He denied he ever knew Jesus. He ran away. He he, he had to save himself. But now, just a few weeks later, he's standing before the same men and boldly preaching the name of Jesus. Why? Because Luke says he's got the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter and the power of the Holy Spirit basically says, listen, I know we're not really in trouble for healing a man. I think he says it kind of sarcastically, right? I know we're not really on trial here because this man that used to be lame is now walking. We're here today because we healed this man in the power and name of Jesus. And then Peter goes on to boldly proclaim the gospel, the good news to these guys in uh, In a one-sentence summary, he says, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And this, this was their real problem. This was at the heart of the chief priest and the elders and the Sadducees, that salvation can only be found in one man, in Jesus. This was at the heart of their rejection of Jesus. And it's oftentimes at the heart of why people in your life may come to reject Jesus today. You know, throughout human history, there's been this fundamental religious question. Are there multiple ways to God? This is not a new question. It's not a new controversy. That the world into which Christianity was birthed was uh, extremely pluralistic. The Romans uh, mastered this idea of taking over cultures and integrating them into their own culture and letting the people worship the gods that they wanted. In fact, the rule in the Roman Empire was basically, you could worship any god you want, just don't say yours is the best or yours is the only. And Peter's response addresses two of the biggest and most often used objectives that people have even today about salvation being found only in Jesus. I just want to take a couple minutes and look at these two objections. The first one is this, Claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. You've probably heard that. People say, well, if you think Jesus is the only way, you must think you're better than everyone else. You you think you see things that no one else sees or that God prefers you and prefers people that believe like you. But what was the message that Peter and John were preaching? 
They were preaching that Jesus had healed the man, that, that Jesus had been raised from their dead. The, the, the message that they were preaching wasn't that they were better than everyone else. In fact, it wasn't about them at all. It was about Jesus. They were simply testifying to this event that they had seen, to the resurrection of Jesus. They were simply giving an account. And so I think the question we have to ask is not, does saying Jesus is the only way, is the message of Christianity, is it arrogant? That's not the right question. The question we have to ask is, is the message of Christianity true? Because if it's a true story, it's not arrogant at all. It's simply the truth. I mean, that gets to the heart of Christian apologetics. You know, it's, it's the story of Jesus, fully God and fully man, living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death, being buried, and then rising from the dead, appearing to his disciples and appearing to many, many people, and then giving them the mission to go be his witnesses, then ascending into heaven and, and giving them the Holy Spirit. The, the question isn't, is that an arrogant story? The question is, is that a true story? Because it's either a true story or a false story. For, for Peter and John, they were telling a true story from their eyewitness account. And if that story's true, then it means that Jesus is who he said he was. And if that true story is false, then Jesus has nothing to do with God and we could just ignore him, right? People will give their life for something they know to be true, but they fold up and run away when they know it's a lie. And I have to tell you, this was probably the deciding factor in my giving my life to Christ. You know, many years ago, um, I had lots of questions about God and the Bible and what it said. And to be, on, be completely transparent with you, God to this day still hasn't answered all of my questions. But in this story, he answered the biggest one, which was this. How does this guy, this, this story that I just couldn't reconcile in human terms, how does this guy or this group of men who feared for their lives when Jesus was on trial, how do they come back maybe two months later and preach in front of the same men who killed Jesus with such boldness as to not care what happens to them unless, unless something happened, unless it was true. Because if something really happened, if Jesus really died and was raised from the dead and if the Holy Spirit came to live inside these guys, that could explain it. But apart from that, I couldn't explain it. What about you? Do you believe the message is true? Because if it's true, it's not arrogant to tell people about it. You, you may say that Peter's claim and our claim that salvation is found only in Jesus is exclusive and puts a lot of people uh, on the outside. It makes church like that clubhouse I had in my basement. But listen, all religions are exclusive. Even that one you've made up in your head is exclusive. You know, the, the one where all good people go to heaven and I get to decide who good is and all the bad people don't. I mean, even that, you're excluding people, right? So if you say all good people go to heaven, who gets excluded? Bad people, right? And then who gets to decide who's bad? I mean, I think we probably all agree, I suppose racists and rapists and child molesters are probably on that list. And depending on your moral convictions, you may put people who are sexually immoral on that list. But if you're the other persuasion, you may put people who judge people who are sexually immoral on that list. And so we, the point is we have, all have our own list, right? We all have a list and some people are on it and some people aren't on it. But that's so hard because how do you define what's good? Who gets to define that? Here's the point. Every religious viewpoint, every moral viewpoint in the entire world ends up being exclusive. Everybody has a line for who's in and who's out. 
But the gospel of Jesus is a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches us that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. My acceptance with God is not anything about me. It's not our moral record. It's not our education. It's not our race. It's not where we come from or our political viewpoint. God gives salvation as a gift to anyone who will repent and receive it. Do you realize that this story of the lame man, what's our story? The lame man is us. Did you know that according to Jewish law, a lame man or a blind man or anyone who was, um, was physically, had a physical defect could not enter the temple? That's why this man stood outside the temple. He couldn't come in to worship, so he would stand outside begging. The people with physical deformities, they couldn't go in. And we're all like that. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are the lame person. And salvation is a gift of grace to all the lame people of the world that believe. I love how pastor and author Tim Keller says it. He says it this way. He says, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. And when you believe this story of Christianity, it doesn't make you arrogant and judgmental. It makes you loving and gracious and accepting. You're not arrogant because you realize that you're not accepted because of your good works. You're not accepted because you figured out the truth or because you were smarter than everyone else, that God healed you when you were lame. God saved you, and that humbles you. It makes you gracious makes you forgiving because you know that God was gracious with you and he forgave you. The second objection that I think people have sometimes is that uh, religion is a matter of personal preference. That, that it, there's not just one way. It's, you know, however you want to get to God. Uh, well, that's your business, right? The idea that you get to be the God of your own life and decide what's right and what's wrong. This is the age-old difference between relative truth and absolute truth. That, that you don't get to decide whether Jesus was resurrected from the dead or not, right? It either happened or it didn't. He's God or he isn't. There's nothing subjective about that. You know, lately, it seems like I've been in the company of a lot of friends who have cancer. And cancer is a terrible disease. And it doesn't discriminate against age or sex or income or religion. It, 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 it comes after you and it can hit anyone. And I just want you to imagine for a minute, God forbid, imagine for a minute that you get a cancer diagnosis. And so you go to the oncologist and you say, doc, I need you to tell me exactly what to do. I will do whatever you tell me to do. We've got to get rid of this thing. And if the doctor said something like, well, there's lots of ways to get rid of cancer. I mean, some people think it can be cured by diet and exercise. Some people like to meditate the cancer away. And some people think if you're just uh, nice to people and, and generous that the cancer will go away. But then there's this other group over here that think you really need surgery and chemotherapy to get rid of cancer. But I think that's pretty exclusive. I don't think you really need to do that. Is that, is that the doctor you're going to go to? No. Why? Because it's life and death. Because it matters. You want the doctor who's going to tell you the truth. He's going to talk straight with you, Right? Listen, the only way to deal with this, we, we got to have surgery, take out the tumor, and then we hit it with chemotherapy and we hit it hard. It's the only way you'll be saved. That's the doctor you're going to go to. It's not personal preference. 
It's not arrogant. Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Let's go back to the text and see what happened. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they took note. When they saw the boldness, why did they take note? Well, I think you can be safe to say they weren't expecting these men to be so bold. A couple of reasons why they weren't expecting to see these men so bold. First, they were facing death. Right? Even in the face of death, they weren't afraid to speak. They, they were able to be bold. And, and you know what? Today, you and I, we don't really have to face death to talk about Jesus. You know, maybe if we were going to Iran or North Korea or someplace like that where Christianity is strictly forbidden, we'd have to face death. But most of us in this room will never, ever have to face death because of our faith. But we sure do face rejection, don't we? I mean, it's possible that you would never die a physical death, but we might die a social death. Have you, have you ever been rejected by someone you love because of the name of Jesus? Maybe it was a family member or a friend. Maybe it was an employer. Maybe it was on social media. You posted something about Jesus and one of your friends posted some snarky remark about it. Or maybe you just got blocked. Or maybe you just noticed that when you post posts about Jesus, they don't get as many likes as the posts of you in that nice dress. And so you've kind of stopped doing that because you're too concerned about what people think of you. Honestly, I think we try way too hard to make Christianity look cool. You know, we can be so afraid that our non-Christian peers are going to think we're not cool. And at the heart of the matter, we really feel re fear rejection, don't we? We look for acceptance from our peers, from our friends, from our family. How did Peter and John deal with that? Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Then he says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know, the implication here in this passage is that we cannot please people and God. We have to choose. And the problem for many of us is that we're trying to do both. You're trying to do both. I follow a lot of you on social media. You're trying to please people and please God. But if you're trying to please God and people, then you have a divided heart. It's a losing battle. What I want to tell you today is that your heavenly father accepts you just how you are. That he has accepted you. He already accepts you. Receive his acceptance. Rest in his acceptance. He knows the depths of your heart. He knows the good and bad. And he says, I accept you. I want you. Come in. And when you receive that acceptance, you'll be free to love and serve and to tell others about Jesus. And you won't worry about how they respond. You won't have to be enslaved to their acceptance of you because you're already accepted. I think that's why Peter and John were able to do what they did. Their identity was in Christ. 
They knew it doesn't matter what these guys say about me. It matters what Jesus says about me. And so they were bold in speaking the truth. They trusted God's love and care for them, regardless of the consequences. The second reason that these guys weren't expecting these to, them to be bold is because, oh, frankly, Peter and John were in an intellectual mismatch. <clears throat> you know what the Bible said about Peter and John? That they were unschooled, ordinary men. In fact, the Greek word that's used for unschooled is, is, the, is the Greek word idiotes. I don't know what that translates at exactly, but they had no formal training. They, they, were, they didn't go to seminary. They weren't professionals. They were amateurs. And so how does that relate to you and me? Well, maybe you don't feel like you know enough. Maybe you don't feel like you've got enough background to share Jesus with people. But I want you to see Peter and John's biblical qualifications for sharing the gospel. Number one, they had spent time with Jesus. That's what the scripture says about them. They were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had spent time with Jesus. And the second thing is they had the Holy Spirit living in them. That was their qualifications. And if you have those two qualifications, you're qualified. You're well-equipped. Here's what happens in verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. Now, in this case, it ended well for Peter and John. It's not always going to end well for these guys. Right? Peter will end up being martyred. History tells us that most of Jesus' disciples were. It won't always end well for us either. You know, while we don't have to worry about being martyred, if we commit ourselves to sharing the good news of Jesus everywhere it's needed, we will face rejection by people. We may even face rejection by people we care about very deeply. And that hurts. And it matters. But it can't stop us from doing what we're supposed to do. Look, look, we focus so much on the healing of the lame man in this passage that we miss the healing power on society that the gospel has. I mean, throughout history, Christians have been on the wrong side of culture, right? We have found ourselves on the wrong side of culture and that is still true today. And if you don't believe me, just watch the news. But the truth is we were never meant to blend into culture. We were never meant to be a part of the culture. We were meant to stand out. And Jesus is the solution to most of society's problems. I mean, Jesus can heal your marriage. Jesus can heal the conflict in your relationships. Jesus is the cure for addiction, for alcoholism, for sexual dysfunction, for, for, for uh, self, self-centeredness in politics and society, for high prison populations, for racism, and for bullying. And, and most importantly, Jesus is the answer for where our eternity lies. And since we have the answer, we can't stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. I want you to see what happens after Peter and John were released. I think this is really cool. I just noticed this for the first time this week. Verse 23 says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they'd heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's what they said. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage in vain and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, who you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Where did Peter and John go when this event was over? They went back to the church. You see that? This is the role of the church to gather together, to help one another grow in our relationship with God, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, and then to go out and live on mission and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to do the work of ministry, to make disciples, and then return back to the church to worship and pray. And that's the cycle that we go through. It's the cycle that we see in the book of Acts, and it's the cycle that you and I are called to, to give God all the praise. And maybe that's a great way to end our time today. I'm gonna take this prayer in in Acts 4 and I'm gonna pray it over our church and the band's gonna come out and we're gonna lift up in prayer and worship the Lord and we'll sing together. Would you pray with me? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke your word into existence. You spoke Jesus into existence against your, or according to your will, Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again. Now, Lord, consider the threats that we face for our faith and enable us, your servants in the church, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Fill us with your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.